You are listening to the Gateway Church in Spring Lake, Michigan. To learn more, visit us at thegatewaygh.com. It is wonderful being here with you this morning. Super excited. I want to catch you up just a little bit about kind of how we got to where we are doing missions. You know, how, how does that come about? So kind of my origin story. Um, when I was eight years old, um, I grew up in Iowa, little chubby, short kid, not very smart, no friends kind of a deal. I grew up in Iowa, small town, 8,000 people in our little town of Washington. Um, but as an eight-year-old kid, that was my first opportunity to go to kids camp. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. And my older sister went, my pastor went, we went. And that was two big things happened that year. Um, one, and again, I grew up AG. My parents met at Central Bible College. I was born in Springfield, Missouri. Um, like, I, I got that green-blue weird color, you know, the old, the old color of, like, uh, if you've ever been to headquarters in Springfield, Missouri, they used to have these bluish, weird blue panels on the building. That color, not the new one, because they swapped them out for, like, a, a nicer blue. So, not, But the old color. I'm still the old color. It's pumping through my veins. And um, so, anyway, I, I've always been saved. But that year at camp, as an 8-year-old kid, like, it clicked that God was pursuing me, and I needed to pursue him back. Not just accept him, but I needed to pursue him. On a daily basis, for a relationship to work, I had to hold up my end of the relationship and communicate back, pursue him. In a marriage relationship, if you don't continue to pursue one another, it falls apart, which is a bad thing. So that was a big like moment as an eight-year-old kid that it's more than just saying a salvation prayer, that I need to pursue God. The other thing that happened actually happened to my older sister, Tanya, and she got filled and baptized with the Holy Spirit, evidence of speaking in a heavenly language. And if you know my older sister, Tanya, that was a miracle. And it was, it was so awesome because, I mean, the power of the Holy Spirit, power to be a witness. And here I am, the shy kid, no friends. I'm like, man, if I got that, I could make a friend. Like, you know? So that was a big deal. And uh, so I, I determined in my heart I was going back to camp again the next year as a nine-year-old kid, and I was getting filled with the Holy Spirit. So I did. I waited. And, again, growing up in the AG, we still had our Pentecost rallies, our tent revival meetings. Um, you know, I, I witnessed people, adults, getting filled with the Holy Spirit. And, but camp was where it happened for kids. And I, had, I, didn't, I didn't even know kids could get filled with the Holy Spirit. So that was awesome. So the next year came around, nine years old, and I'm like, Mom, I want to go to camp again. And she's like, ah, Jeremy, you know, Tanya's not going this year. Your pastor's not going. You're not going to know anybody. If I take you up there, you're there. I mean, I'm not coming back to get you. It was like a four-hour drive. And uh, I'm like, no, it's fine. Sign me up. So she did. Drove me up there, dropped me off, put me in this big room with a bunch of boys, like, the bathroom the previous year, they had these nice new dorms all made, you know, and it was like hotel style. It's pretty nice. This year, they put me in the old style dorm. Like, the bathroom was just like a big room. And I'm like, no, that ain't happening, you know. You can make it till about Thursday. We'll, we'll leave it at that. But <coughs> a, a typical camp week, the way it goes, is Monday is your kind of salvation night. 
right? Tuesday is your growth and healing night, maybe. And then you get to Wednesday, and that's your typical Holy Spirit night. So that's your emphasis. And the, the, the sure enough, Wednesday came around, the speaker started talking about the Holy Spirit. And I don't know what he said. I just know at the very end, he says, it's altar time. And so I got up, and I came down, and I stood down at the altar, and I stayed there and prayed and prayed and prayed. For two hours, I stayed at that altar. The room had cleared out, and finally the Holy Spirit came upon me, and I began to speak in that heavenly language. He's like, yeah, this is awesome. I'm going to be able to make a friend this year, you know. It's going to be so cool. And um, and then, you know, the next night was the going night, okay. You, you've been empowered. You're saved now. You're healed. You know, every, you've just fixed everything this week. Now it's time to go back out and be that witness. Use that power that you've just received. And so the altar call was given, but this time he just wanted us to find somewhere in the room and just sit quietly for the voice of God. No music, no praying, just sit and listen. And so, of course, all the kids are getting up. Hey, have you ever been, like, in a kids-type setting? You know, they're, they're trying to crawl up on the stage because that's the cool place to be. Or, like, you know, in the back of the sanctuary where they got all the, the stairs, the extra stairs stacked that are, like, crawling under them or climbing on top of them like billy goats, you know, trying to find. And, you know, the leaders are all like, no, get down, get down. You can't be on there. And so my row cleared out, and I just stayed there. And uh, so I closed my eyes and just listened. I heard somebody say my name, so I looked up. And I fully expected my, my counselor, my room leader, to have come and sat next to me. And there was nobody there. And I closed my eyes again, and I heard it again. Jeremy, I want you to be a missionary. I want you to go to Africa, and I want you to tell them about me. And then I began to see images of myself in Africa. And I was like in the jungles of the Congo, and I had this huge treehouse, and I can still picture myself standing up in the treehouse holding my pet chimpanzee. And then I was like, I had this speed the light elephant, and I was riding it out to all these pygmy tribes. It was the coolest thing in the world. Okay, nine years old, and I love Swiss Family Robinson, you know. And then you get married, and your wife is like, that is not of God. So then you end up like sub-Saharan desert with like no animals. It's like, fine, whatever. But... In that moment, I knew I was called. And then at the end of the week, my mom comes, picks me up. We're heading back home. You know, she just drove four hours to get there, had another four-hour drive back. It's just me and her in the car. She's wanting to talk. She's, like, falling asleep. And if you've ever been to camp, I'm falling asleep, you know. Um, but my mom's wanting to talk. She's asking me how things went. Did you make a friend, you know, kind of thing. No, you know, but I watched some cool kids play some some foosball. They were pretty good kind of deal, you know. And, uh and, but, hey, I, I did get filled with the Holy Spirit. And so then she's like, yeah, that's awesome, Jeremy. I'm so excited for you. And so then you say, and not only that, but God, God called me to be a missionary to Africa. And then my mom starts crying. I can remember heading down Interstate 80 and looking over at her and watching as tears stream down my mom's face. Mom, what's wrong? Jeremy, nothing's wrong. When you were just a baby still in my belly, I was praying for you one day, and God told me that. And so as a nine-year-old kid, to have that kind of confirmation, I knew what I was doing with my life. And I didn't waver. Like, I mean, I was still not very bright back then. 
<laughs> but I knew, I knew the path that God had laid before me. And so you start walking down that path. You start preparing yourself, you know. And so I, I graduated. I went to Central Bible College. I did a four-year degree in missions. You know, you study cultural anthropology, like getting into a culture. You, you study the effects of culture shock. You know, you begin every chance you get. You meet with missionaries and talk to them. You go on missions trips. We even did, my wife and I did one trip to, to the Congo um, with the Dickinsons, which are missionaries out of Ohio, just for the sole purpose of going and living with them to see what missionary life was like. Not a missions trip, but to see what missionary life was like, the day-to-day stuff was like. Like, you begin to prepare yourself. And so then, you know, you, you, you're finishing up college. And, and back then, when I was nine years old, AG missions was completely different. Like, you had to go to sp- Bible college for four years. You had to senior pastor for two years. You you had to become ordained. You had to, as a male, you had to be married. They weren't sending single males on the mission field at that point. And so that worked out for me. So praise the Lord for that. Who saw that one coming when I was nine years old with no friend? But it works out. And, uh, you know, God, sometimes he knows what he's doing. And, uh, and so, you know, you're, you're hitting all these things, but you, I reached college, and I did two internships. I did a missions internship in Guam. I did a ministerial internship in Ohio. Um, and during both of those, the children's pastor resigned. I took over children's ministry responsibilities. And it was that my senior year, I had already graduated. I just had to finish up my ministerial internship that God challenged me and said, Jeremy, I want you to go and tell the kids about me. So I was like, well, I don't really know anything about that. So I got married. I'm like, Jen, I think we should dedicate 10 years of our, you know, first years to learning and figuring out children's ministry. That way when you go, you have something to offer, right? And so we did. We did 10 years of children's ministries in Ohio as children's pastors. And then you hit that 10-year mark. You've had your kids. You know, and that's a big deal. You get to that 10-year mark where your kids are now out of the diaper stage, you know, and you're, you're like, you're figuring figuring things out within your marriage roles, you know, and, and uh, you know, it's all this huge learning process, and you're just continually learning, 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 working up to this point, and then finally, okay, let's, let's apply, so then you apply, and then it's like a, a year process just to apply for missions within the Assemblies of God, to get that stamp of approval, then it's like 18 months, now I think 18 months to two years to raise your budget to be able to go overseas, and so then you get that stamp of approval, and you, you load up whatever else you have left that you haven't already sold off that you're taking with you, and you, you board the plane, you take off, and then you land, and you're in France, not Africa, because Senegal is a French colony up until the 60s, so its national language is French, and you don't know French, and they don't know English, so you, you invest another year learning French. So you're like, okay, okay. Like, and that was grueling. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. That was grueling. And so then, then finally, you know, you, you board the plane again, and you take off. And this time you land, and you walk down the steps onto the tarmac in Senegal 25 years from the time you were called as a nine-year-old boy. You're there. And... And you start hearing this, like, high-pitched squealing noise, like a whistling noise. And then a sizzle. And it is so hot. 
it's your speed or it's your um what what do I wear? It, it, yeah, it's your it's your deodorant. Like your your deodorant is like it's so hot, it's melting and it's running down your arm and dripping off your elbow and landing on the tarmac and sizzling. And like you look out in the distance and it's all you know those that heat wave when you look through the uh, and it's hot and the heat's coming back up off the roadway and it's it's all just kind of a blur and you're looking and you're breathing and you're like Whoa, it's really hot here. You know, and like you land in August, which is like the middle of their hot rainy season. So the humidity levels are up at like 90%. You know, your dew points are up at 90%. And it is hot, you know. And you're just sweating. And you, for weeks, you just sweat and sweat and sweat. Like it's unbelievable because you're not accustomed to it. And you're like, how do people even function? Like, by noon, you are just exhausted from sweating so much. And, and then you've got to do ministry. And that, you know, you, you spent that year learning language, right? So you, you're like, yeah, I, I know some language. You, you don't. That's not true. You know, you're going into it. I put myself on a 10-year plan. I'm just going to be straight with you. And so you get there. Like, the house you're living in, the faucet breaks. You're like, oh, i got to go get a new faucet, right? So you, you go, and you go to the, the local Kinkairi, the little Home Depot shop, right? And you, you go up to the counter, and you're like, ah, bonjour. Like, okay, in France, as well as in Africa, introductions, goodbyes are very, very important. So you go through this whole dialogue, right? And then uh, it's not just a hi, how are you doing? It's, it's, it's a dialogue. And so you go through the whole thing, and you, you feel like you aced it. Like you did pretty good. You're, you're pretty happy with yourself. And so finally, now you get to ask for the faucet. Ah, we oui, um, je voudrais un... When you learn a new language... Okay, H have you guys seen the, the Lego movie? Le yeah, the Lego, the, the original, the first Lego movie. Okay, I, I think how many Lego movies, the Batman, then Jago, the first one. Okay, in the first one, there's this one point where the, the hero of the story, he's like, he's not very creative, right? And they're like, no, no, you're, you've got to be so creative, right? You're the, you're the chosen one. So they have this moment where they go up in his brain just to show him, like, how creative he really is. And they get up there, and he looks around, and he's like, Oh, you know, he's looking around. It's like, it's huge. And it's like, this is awesome. This is amazing. This is my brain. It's so huge. And they get up there and they're looking around. They're like, there really is nothing here. <laughs> How is that possible? You have not had one original thought in your entire life, you know? And so it's, it's like that. Like you learn this language. And it, it eats your first language, and then it self-destructs, and you're standing there like, I, I don't even know what this word is in English. <laughs> like, a, a spigot. Um, I, I don't know. Like, and so then you describe it. Like, oui, c'est uh, dans la salle c'est pour, pour de l'eau, you know, and then it's like you're trying to express it all, and like finally, it, it finally out of nowhere, it comes to you. Faucet, you know, like I I need a faucet. But then you're speaking English, and he's still looking at you, like I don't know what you're saying, and you're like, I never learned that word. Like, you don't learn faucet in in your French class. So then you gotta get out your Google Translate and translate it. But it's it's difficult, and not only that, like even in a church setting, like the first service I did, 
Like, I had my notes. It was all manuscript style in French. I, th- this, is, this is my first ser- sermon was, it was corrected by my, my French teachers. So it was, grammatically, it was solid. It's very simple. But it was solid. And it was, it was awesome because it was right during the rainy season. And I did a, an illustration. It was mud. So I, I brought in some mud from outside and did this illustration. They didn't even get it. Like, I was struggling. Like, I was sitting here at my notes. Like, and it's being interpreted from French, my French, into Wolof. And so I'm going along, going along, going along. And my interpreter's not getting it. The people aren't getting it. They're just looking at you like, what is he saying? And so, uh, you know, at one point, you slide your notes across to the interpreter, and you say, I'm right here. Just just read along with me. And they, like at the end of the service, the pastor gets up, and it's normal. He'll get up, and he'll just kind of emphasize what was preached and then, you know, encourage the believers and stuff. And he gets up, and I was still struggling with, like, hearing and understanding French but he didn't get it. <laughs> he had no idea what I was talking about. And then I did a, not long after that, I did a kid's service. And so I use a flower, right? You know, you use around the world, you use flowers as a symbol, as a symbol of love. You know, um, you know, you use it as a, a sign of mourning when somebody dies. You know, I'm going through like all these illustrations of how, how people use flowers. And they got flowers there. And they, they don't get it. Like the kids don't get it. And the, the, the kid's leader that was there with me, he didn't get I spent five minutes just standing there talking to him, trying to explain to him my illustration of a flower. Like, you, you just aren't prepared for how difficult it's going to be. As much as you prepare, there's still more you have to learn. And, and I'm not naive. I wasn't naive. I, well, sometimes I, maybe I am naive, but I... I knew missions was going to be hard. You know, again, I talked to missionaries. I knew I was going to be putting myself on like a 10-year language learning plan. Like, you know when you study cultural shock and you study cultural anthropology, like culture shock has these ups and downs. And it doesn't matter how awesome you are, and there's some pretty awesome people out there, you're still going to face it. You're still going to have these ups and downs where you mourn what you've left behind. And not just you, but every person in your family is going to do this. And it's like month-long processes. Like, you're doing this for months, having these roller coaster rides up and down. And you're, you're isolated. You know, and, and as much as we try to share with people back home, all those friendships, those really close friendships that you had previously, th- you grow apart. You really do. And on the field, like, even though there's a national church, we have 40-some churches in Senegal, you, haven't, you have no real relationship with them. And there's this huge disconnect, and you're isolated. And there's times you just, I would sit down, I would sit down at night after the girls and my wife had gone to bed, which, it, like, I kid you not, like, 9 o'clock is missionary midnight, like, along the equator, you know, sunsets about 7.30, 8 o'clock. The mosquitoes come out, and you're like, I'm done. So you just go to bed. And so I'm sitting down there in my chair, in my little Ikea chair, and <laughs> I'm just weeping, like crying. And you, it's ridiculous because you're like, <laughs> I know this is normal. 
I know I'm going to make it through this. But, like, it's just so overwhelming. And, and you know what? Life is like that. You know, l- last week, I listened to your message last week. And, and in Acts chapter 4, you know, it, as, he's, as he's going through Acts, as the pastor was going through Acts chapter 4, he, he, at one point, he goes back to Matthew chapter 5, 10, something around there. I forget. But it, it talks about Jesus telling the disciples they will be persecuted. Like, we know this kind of stuff is going to happen. But it doesn't make it any easier. We still struggle through it. So, you know, this, this morning... My primary message, you know, I I love the story of Peter. Peter has an incredible story. You know, and and you look in Acts chapter 10, and I'm sure, you know, as you guys are working your way through Acts, you're going to get a lot more detail and info here. Um, Acts chapter 10 is an incredible chapter, okay? Acts chapter 10, this is the chapter where Cornelius, uh, a Roman centurion, he's actually a part of the Italian cohort, so he's a leader of, of military men, like, you know, probably about 100 or so. But he is a godly man. He's not Jewish. He's a godly man. God sees that, sees that he gives to the poor, and he appears to him in a vision or sends angels to him in a vision, telling him he needs to go find Peter, Simon Peter. Tells him he's at the house of Simon the Tanner in Joppa, and he needs to send men to go find Simon Peter. And so he does. Then you get down further in that chapter, and Simon Peter, it's noon, and as a man, he's hungry. Now, if you live in, in Middle Eastern African culture, now I, I start to understand this. In, in my setting in Senegal, the wives start preparing the meal about noontime, but they're cooking over one pot, like one fire, and it won't be till like two or three until you actually get to eat. So I'm understanding new times here, and he's hungry. So he's hungry, and he goes up on the roof to pray. And as he prays, he has this vision. And God lowers a sheet down in front of him, and it's got all kinds of animals on it. And he says, Peter, take and eat. And Peter's like, no, no, Lord, I'm not going to do that. I'm a good Jewish boy. I don't eat unclean things. Because if you know Jewish history and, and you go back to like Leviticus, it talks about clean animals, unclean animals, what the Jewish people can eat, what they can, can't eat. And now he's got this whole sheet filled with animals and he's looking at them. There's all kinds of animals. Now, this is where it gets a little funny because why doesn't he just take one of the good ones and eat it? If it's got all kinds of animals. But he says they're unclean. And he has to go through this learning process again. And it's really interesting. And he says, you know, and and if if you look into this, and I, I, I won't go into it for sake of time, but it's really interesting how this really become, comes down to being a man-made law, not a Levitical law. Because they're just touching. And it was kind of a gray area. There are some things in in the Old Testament where God says, you know, if if this unclean thing touches this clean thing, it too becomes unclean. But in regards to live animals, there's nothing really said. It became a gray area. So they kind of created 
this man-made law saying, well, it's unclean too. So if this sheep touches this snake, they're all unclean. And God's saying, no, no, don't call unclean what I call clean. And God tells him to eat three times. Three is, is one of those numbers that keeps coming up in Peter's life. Right? You know the story, Peter? Right? So go back all the way to, um, start back all the way at Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is just getting ready to be taken away from them. And, and he tells them, you, you will deny me. And there's this, this, this scenario that plays out with Peter. And Peter's like, God, they may, but I would never do that. And he says, no, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Right? And then, then you, you fast forward to John chapter, well, Jesus is, you know, he's taken away. And, of course, you know, Peter does. He's approached three times. Hey, you're a follower of Jesus. Hey, don't you know Jesus? Hey, aren't you one of his men? No, no, no. And then the rooster crows. Then you move on to John chapter 21. And John chapter 21, Jesus has already died. He, he's gone to heaven. And now he's, there's this time period where he's reappearing to the disciples and to the believers. And you have this dialogue again with Peter, with Jesus and Peter. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Well, yes, Lord. You know I love you, Peter. Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Well, yes, Lord, of course I love you. Peter, be a shepherd to my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, yes, yes, I love you. You know I do. Peter, feed my sheep. And it's this incredible redemptive moment. It's beautiful, right? And, and he brings Peter back in. And he forgives him. And so then, you know, not, not only, like Peter, the, the whole story of Peter is, is his growth. He's growing, 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 growing. And he has these moments where God has to, like, really set him down and be like, hey, this is what's going on. You know, he, he reaches these points in his life. You know, you get all the way up to um, Acts chapter 5. And so coming up here next week, I think, right? So Acts chapter 5, well, it's interesting too because you mentioned last week, Acts chapter 4, that they were, they were not happy with him because he was unlearned. He, he didn't, he wasn't, you know, he didn't go through rabbin rabbinical training but he invested time with Jesus. He was trained over and over and over again. And then you get to Acts chapter 5, and here he is. Like, this is that arrival moment, okay? You know, you see, you, I talk, I make, I joke, I kind of joke and make fun. You know, when I was nine years old, I finally received the Holy Spirit. And I was like, yeah. You know, that's, that's like pinnacle Christianity, you know, similes of God stuff right there. And so, you know, but here's Peter. And Acts chapter 5, he's already gone through a lot. And then you reach Acts chapter 5, and he's walking down the street. And people are coming, like, and they're laying people just alongside the road, just so his shadow will fall on them, and they may be healed. 
That's a pretty big arrival moment. I have not quite gotten there. I'm not sure when that one's going to happen. But that's pretty huge. But then we, we see in Acts chapter 10, he's still, he's still got more to learn. Here's the guy, he's walking down the road, and just this shadow falling on people would heal them. He's building the church. He's the man. He's the lead, like the lead man in all of this. And then Acts chapter 10, God's saying, Peter, let's have a talk again. You're not getting it. And what I learned from all of this is it doesn't matter how much we prepare, you never hit that arrival moment. It doesn't matter how old we get. It doesn't matter how much education we've received. It doesn't matter who our mentor was. It is our goal to become more Christ-like and to follow after him. And in doing that, we are working to become perfected in him. But it's a process. And you, you know, I find myself, I, I, I have a pretty amazing calling story. In the way that God led my footsteps and, and destined my life. There's that potential to have that I've arrived mentality. And yet, sometimes God needs to say, nope, Jeremy, you're not quite there yet. And you have to have that breaking, that humbling moment. Life is difficult. You know, just like your pastor said last week, in Matthew, he, Jesus told them, you will suffer. We, we like to think that there's, God's all about blessings and healings and, and all that, but he's honest with us too to say you, you will suffer. I, what I love about Peter's story too is he didn't set Peter up for failure. He didn't set him up, you know, thinking, oh, you're going to be the best. You're going to do amazing things. No, he was real with him. He told him, you will be persecuted. Then, in, in John chapter 21, the redemption chapter, right, right after Jesus redeems him, do you know what he tells him? Anybody? 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 John chapter 21, right after he redeems him, you know, three times forgives him, do you love me? Yes, feed my sheep. Jesus goes in and foreshadows how Peter will give his life for him, for serving Jesus. You will be tied up. Oh, I'm not sure how the volume got on on that one. He tells him, you will give your life for serving me. He didn't promise him it would be easy. He didn't promise him that, you know, Everywhere you walk, people would get healed and, and people would become saved. 
I mean, you hit that arrival moment like in Acts chapter 5. That's a pretty comfortable place where you just kind of want to hang out there. And God's saying, no, I need you to go out. Because now in Acts chapter 10, not only do I want the Jewish people to know me and hear about me, I, I need you guys to accept the rest of the world, the Gentiles. I, I need you to accept all these pagans as well because they need to know about me because I gave my life for them too. And in Senegal, like, I have, you know, you have these plans and there's, there's a national children's department and you're thinking you're going to go work with them and just like immediately start doing trainings and you're going to know French and it's going to be awesome. No, you don't. But, you know, you, you kind of have this plan of how things are going to work out and then it just, it doesn't and it's hard and you're hitting this culture shock waves and, and then you get a phone call. And you answer it, and, and you're like trying your best to figure out who this is. Like, I, I, I was struggling that day. Like, the guy was telling me his French was horrible, my French was horrible. And if you're learning a new language, like, communicating face-to-face is one thing. On the phone is a completely different thing. Because you don't know where the conversation is starting and where it's going. Like, so you're just struggling the whole time. And finally, I figure out, okay, this is Dame. Dame Jen. And Dame, he... He was my metal guy. He came and fixed my metal door on my kitchen. And I had like hardly no interaction with him. Barely talked to the guy. And finally, I, 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 this one day I get this phone call from him. He's like, hi, uh, um, my wife just had a baby. And they're like, oh, well, okay. <laughs> okay, where's this conversation going? Well, that's awesome. You know, we, we would love to come and see her and, and, and your new baby. Is that is that possible? Yeah, well, she's in the hospital right now. Oh, well, you know, we'll give her time. You know, when she gets out of the hospital and she gets settled back at home, we'd love to come see her. And I had talked with him. Like, I knew where his metal shop was in town. And he told me he lives, like, a couple blocks down the road. So I'm like, that'd be great. You know, we'll just we'll bring our family. You give me a call. We'll bring our family, and we'd love to come see her. And he's like, okay, that's cool. And you're like, man, I really don't know where, where this is going. And so finally you get the phone call, and you set up, you schedule Friday. You'll come Friday morning. You'll, you'll meet him at his shop, pick him up, and then you'll go meet his wife and his newborn baby. And so you, you do. You load up the family, you pack up your water bottles, and uh, so that's always important. And, and you, you go expecting that it's going to be at least a two-hour visit. Like, this, this kind of stuff over there, it's not, when you go visit somebody, you're building relationships, whatever, it's, it's not a simple go, you meet, you give a gift, and then you pray, leave, whatever. You know, it's, it's like you're investing time, okay? So we expected to invest some time. But we go pick him up, and then he starts giving me directions to his house, and I'm trying to understand him. Because and, and I'm, I'm thinking, like, where he told me his house was before. But he's not leading me in that direction. Like, he keeps leading me away. Finally, you hit the marketplace at the edge of town, and you're realizing he's not living where he told you he was living. And I, I remember turning around, like, he doesn't know English. He could barely speak French. And telling my family, we're all crushed in our, our, our pickup truck. And uh, being, like, you know, with a smile on your face, hey, um, I'm not sure where he's taking us, but this, just be happy. 
but this is probably going to be an all-day event. Because we're heading out of town, and I don't know. He keeps saying someplace. I don't know where he's saying. <laughs> and you keep driving an hour outside of town. You're out in the desert, and he, he takes you off a main road. You start heading through the sand down a donkey cart path, and then he gets lost. We're out in the middle of nowhere now. Like, there's nothing around. He gets lost, so we, we switch back. He, he does that twice. He gets lost on these donkey, donkey cart paths twice. And then finally, we arrive in this tiny little village, you know, like seven to ten huts in a circle out in the desert. We park the truck, and we get out, and we go inside. And when we get inside, his wife's in there in one of the huts, and she she, uh, Jen, my wife, was one of the first ones in into the hut, and so the wife hands the baby to my wife, and my wife is holding her, and then it dawns on us, oh my goodness, he has not seen his wife in nine months. This is the first time he has seen her since she's been pregnant, because she's gone out to the village to live with her family. He doesn't have the money, so he couldn't get the taxi ride out to his wife and child. This is the first time he's seeing his wife and his newborn baby boy. He hasn't even been given, the baby boy hasn't even been given a name at this point. And my wife's holding him. <laughs> he hasn't even got to hold his, his son yet. Like, it's a completely Muslim village. You know, in our video, it talks about potentially being the first one to step foot as a Christian to cross that threshold. And here you are, you're finding yourself in this this moment, this intimate moment with this family as they greet one another and you you watch the interaction between the husband and the wife. And then finally, as Jen's realizing, we, we give the baby back up and he gets to hold his son for the first time. And you're thinking, God, what in the world am I doing here? What in the world? When you're willing... God will do amazing things and it'll blow your mind. And you'll be like, God, what is going on? And here we are with my family. We spend the entire day with them. We share lunch on the floor with them. And at the end of the day, we give them a gift to the mom and to, you know, for the baby, some baby supplies. And they have no idea what the baby supplies are. So my wife's like telling her how to use them or whatever. And it's just simple stuff like shampoo and a thermometer and, you know, just real basic stuff, but they don't they don't know how to use any of that. And then, you, you know, you tell them, you know, we, we are Christians. We are a follower of Jesus. Would you mind if I, we pray for you? If we pray for your, your family and for your baby? And so there you are in their hut, in their home, and you're all standing there and praying in Jesus' name. In those moments, it washes away so much. But you've got to be willing. That Holy Spirit pastor mentioned last week, it's about boldness. Being bold and taking the step and doing it. Saying, okay, God. <laughs> That's not what I'm here for. I'm here to train children's leaders. And then you find yourself out in some village like having no idea why he even called you. But God will use you.
when you're willing, when you step out in faith. I had another instance where I'm, uh, we were just getting ready to come back stateside, and I'm, I'm at the market because my wife wanted a, a mat woven out of plastic strands, and she had like a certain color combination she needed, so I'm like spending the day at the market trying to search down this mat, and I, I find one, so I take a picture of it, send it to her. She's like, that's awesome, do it. Well, so then you start bartering, and the guy's like, ah, oh, $50, and you're like, no way, I've already bought two of these at like 5 and $7, so there's no way I'm paying 50 I'm like, I am, I'm not just a two-bob, I live here, okay? So... And, you know, there's all these other guys. They're all Muslims. They're all standing around gawking at the, the white tube trying to buy a mat. And so finally, I just feel a prompting. You know, I sc- I'm kind of going back and forth with this guy, knowing it's not going anywhere. And God just says, hey, ask him about his hand. And the whole time he'd kept his arm right here. And you, you knew there was something wrong. But, I mean, in our culture, it's kind of rude to just say, oh, hey, I see you're disabled. What's going on with that, you know? But now here I am in this market with all these Muslims around me and feeling the prompting of the Holy Spirit asking me or telling me to ask him about it. And you do. And he's like, ah, uh, I was doing the job, you know, several years ago and injured it and I just haven't been able to use it. It gives me a lot of pain. Again, you got to do the disclaimer. Oh, well, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm a follower of Jesus. You know, Jesus is the According to them, he's the prophet that healed, that did miracles. Do you mind if I, which, too, they don't believe he's the son of God, so that's a big thing. That's a big issue. But do you mind if I pray for you, pray in Jesus' name that he heals you? Okay. And the guy gives me his hand, so I'm standing there, and I pray. I begin to pray, and, and I pray in English because praying my French is awful, and praying in French it just wouldn't work. And, and so, and they would understand that I'm totally botching the prayer, so I do it in English. But I pray, and he takes his hand back, and you ask him, you know, how, how is it? Uh, it? It still hurts. Well, thanks, guy. That was perfect. That worked so well. Glad, glad I followed that one. But then you ask for it again. Can I, can I pray one more time? And he gives you his hand again. He gave me his hand again, and I prayed over it again. And this time when he takes it back, he opens it up, and he squeezes a fist. He's like, yeah, yeah, it's better. What in the world? All you have to do is be willing to step out. It's not easy. It's, it's, sometimes it's terribly difficult. Sometimes you take your whole family in it, and they're looking at you like, what are you doing? Don't do that. Don't do that. But you do it. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Lord Jesus, (laughs) I love you. I am so thankful for you. Lord God, I just pray right now that you would just be with us, each one of us. Lord, I pray that you would send your spirit to search our hearts. And Lord, that if there's individuals in here, Lord, that need you, that need to trust in you, Lord, I pray that your spirit would prick their hearts, that you would draw them. Lord, you are constantly pursuing us. And this morning, Lord Jesus, I pray that those that need it, Lord, those that need you, would make the choice this morning to begin to pursue you back. Lord, you don't promise us an easy life. 
you don't promise us all the blessings that potentially this world has to offer. You, you've made it clear that as Christians, when we make this decision to follow after you, we will struggle. There will be struggles. But Lord, there are those moments in between where it's worth it, where you'll use us, and we'll see incredible things happen. But Lord, we've got to be able to walk in the boldness of your Holy Spirit and step out and open our mouths and be just speak sometimes. And so Lord, w w first off, we take this moment to say, take, take our lives. We give our hearts to you. Forgive us of our sins. Help us now, Lord Jesus, to determine to follow after you regardless of how difficult it becomes. And then, Lord, too, we also pray that you empower us. And, Lord, we don't just abuse that power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We don't just hold on to it as, as a claim to fame. We don't just hold on to it as a status symbol that, yes, I've been filled with your Spirit. But, Lord, that we use it as the tool that it's meant to be in our lives to go. Lord, let us become sensitive to your voice in our lives, to your Spirit in our lives. And even when it's an awkward situation, even when it goes against um, our cultural norms, Lord, we'd still be willing to step out and speak out. Speak your name. Proclaim your name. Pray for those that need it. And Lord, let us believe. Help us to believe. We love you and we praise you in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message from the Gateway Church. If you'd like to find out more about our church, such as service times, giving, and ways to get connected, visit us at thegatewaygh.com.